Story 9, The Masculine and the Dead, by Frank Bill. The pain of a hard breath came every morning like callous knuckles to the kidneys. Not from a punch, but from the push of foot to earth, the burning of lungs, the pump of muscles, the screams of men barking in Guy's brain with gunfire, and the shrieks of jihadism seared in his memory. This contemplation was his torment, whittling his intellect day after day, the blame from being over there, tour after tour, and not here, with her, in death. But Guy made a choice, his and the four legs of red, smoke-gray, and red-ticked fur ran along the double track of dirt, taking the steep climb of rock and root up some 1,200 feet of elevation. He dug deep to find the top. Halfway up the hill, his thighs wrung tight, and he questioned, did she suffer? Or had the end come as quickly as the snapping of fingers? Would the outcome have coursed and plotted differently had he not been over there, hunting Taliban and ISIS. She'd made her choice, not included him, had given up treatments. In the end, that was the issue. No one told him until after. She's gone. We need you to come home. At the top of the hill, he did not stop. He kept pace, just as he did every day. He kept logging miles on the beat and broken country roads and the dirt trail surrounding acres, or he'd press, pull, and squat plates of iron within his dusty webbed barn. But that's what Guy did every day. Broke himself down. Regardless of rain, snow, hot or cold, none of nature's elements had any effect on his routine. He pushed tiring himself with the lactic burn of endurance and strength training, until his limbs pulsed with blood and tremored with exhaustion, until he could no longer run or press, pull, or squat. Normally, Guy and his red tick hound carbine would now follow the right flank two more miles to his home, a cabin upon 200 acres of woods left to him by his father. A rocky holler separated him from those woods upon which sat a barnacle trailer of grime covered in an entanglement of split glass windows nestled into the hillside of walnut and oak. Leaves lay brown and decayed, adding to the faded beer cans, empty fists of early times and Jim Beam, bicycles with tires of rot, frames colored by rust, and the single eye of a pit bull, wrapped in a brindled, mud-puddled coat, whose Cro-Magnon man's bone gauge of chain kept it restrained to what looked like a weathered truck propeller shaft sledgehammered into the soil. A dented and nicked chemical drum wedged beneath the molten green deck and lined with grimy rags served as the pit's sleeping arrangement. Two warped frying pans lay before the canine, one for feeding, the other for hydration. His watch registered 15 miles. Highway 62 curved behind him with the limestone wall dotted with cedar about the top. As he crossed from the double track trail that ran some 20 miles through old man Travis's property over clumps of cinder outlined by snakes and shaded by timber, salty beads flamed into Guy's vision. The tread of his trail shoes weighted the busted blacktop of Walnut Valley Road combined with the pant of Carbine who kept cadence with him.
Guys cramping hamstrings, depleted of potassium and sodium, ached painfully with every tread, same as those days under the sun and sand. A 60-pound rucksack weighing on his shoulders and back, sprinting into the Humvee with the eruption of explosives and gunfire overseas, finger heavy on the trigger of his M4 machine gun, and grit somersaulting into the vehicle as they sped through the war-torn streets, past the weathered visages of men and women whose hard lives bled through zombie-like movements up and down the war-torn turf. His lungs flamed while perspiration irritated his vision of a man in a Harley Davidson t-shirt, mercury locks slicked and ponytailed into a braid with a matching beard that coursed like flames from his face in all directions. His moniker, Cop Weevil. Cop shook a wiry fist of bone at his young boy, just as Guy remembered Cop's father had done to him in his adolescence. Cop's boy was not much older than the pit in dog years, with a leg as crooked as a jack pine tree branch flaring in and out from his frame. Hair splashed over the boy's eyes in choppy lengths that resembled a worn floor mop, jagged and burnt. His scrawny frame covered in a whole worn cotton shirt and dirt-stained denim. He had a grin frozen in confusion, as if Lockjaw had been chiseled into his nine-year-old chops, though it had not. It was only his slow-minded demeanor. Throughout the valley, he was referred to as crooked-legged bow weevil. Coming down the hill, he caught sight of violence, which hammered Guy to a dead stop on the knotted terrain. Cop's palm struck Bo's head full of messy locks, which knocked Bo's ragged frame backward over a dented lime green push mower. Wanting to mind his own to finish his last few miles, Guy felt conflicted as his discipline of soldiering, of hunting down bad men and removing their ill ways and negative effects was branded into him. He could not ignore the actions of anger displayed by Cop toward Bo. Seeing the boy treated in such a fashion redirected Guy from the road, consumed by memories of a young Afghan boy being lashed at by a tribal member for waving at the American troops passing through their village. He kicked the boy's feet from underneath him and slammed him face first into hard earth. This image of terror angered Guy as he crossed the wooden driveway bridge over the rocky holler that connected Walnut Valley to the Weevil's weeded gravel and pothole drive. Carbine on his heels, with his violet tongue hanging from his panting pink stretch of jowls. Guy recalled his getting involved, even though it wasn't allowed, stepping up with a swift drive of his automatic rifle into the rear of the man's skull showing him the sand and daring him to find his footing while offering a hand to the boy. There were several other times when he stepped in, stopped beatings, killings, rapes, and bodily dismemberment of those who were tired of being mistreated and ruled by terror. Guy sometimes felt that if religion was removed from the equation, they'd have nothing to fight about, no grounds to stand upon. Guy believed there was a freedom in the U.S. that others took for granted. One side lived comfortable, while another side fought and sacrificed for the other side's comfort. Guy had spent most of his life fighting for others who could not fight for themselves, and he'd do the same here, just as he'd done overseas. 
Guy had always held distance from the boy and his sire because of the bad blood incited by a nasty land dispute between Guy's and Cop's fathers. In their younger years, their fathers had both been employed by the local quarry. The 15 acres Cop called home belonged to his daddy, passed down to him after Cop Sr. died from a three-pack of Marlboros a day habit. Add that to the bottles of Jim Beam and early times Cop Sr. used to wash away the gritty coughing caused by the inhalation of dust from granulating stone into gravel at the quarry. The toxic abuse had taken residence in the lungs, then the liver, retiring Cop's old man from existence. The land had been offered to Cop's daddy by Guy's father after they'd gotten to know each other at the quarry, giving the man a chance at a fresh start for himself and his family. A payment plan had been set forth, but no papers had ever been drawn up. Deeded by the grasp of appendages, Guy's father had been old school. To him, a man was only as good as his word. After nearly a year of never missing a payment, the second year followed with delinquent payments and excuses, car troubles, plumbing issues, need a new roof, wife's out of work, helping in-laws, and so on and so forth. When the excuses had run dry with repetitiveness, Guy's daddy felt idiotic because of his Samaritan ways. A final visit was paid, and threats to evict were given, looking at Guy's daddy on the deck through the trailer's screen door. Cop's daddy, holding a double-barreled 12-gauge, said there was no contract. Guy's father was trespassing on his 15 acres, and if he didn't get on his way, he'd scatter him and his threats about the yard. That was the finality of the land agreement. Bo's crooked appendage was stuck upon the housing of the mower, while the other foot, trembling and weak, pressed at the small exhaust. Cop, with his scrounge of hair, stood over Bo, his back to Guy, spraying a defilement of words like those of that Afghan tribesman. Stupid little son of a bitch. Tell you to do one damn thing and you fucked that up. Going and flooded the damn mower. Cop kicked Bo in his ribs. Ah! Bo wailed. Get your gimp ass up, Cop demanded. The action set off an explosion of ordinances within Guy's demeanor. Guy came up behind him, snaked his left arm under Cop's right, and locked it. His right forearm pressed across the back of Cop's neck. His right palm cupped and latched into the chicken meat of Cop's neck. He pulled Cop away from Bo, swept his weight from his feet, and drove Cop face first into the patched yard of burnt grass. Cop's pit emerged from beneath the trailer in a torrent of barking, reeling the chain stiff as a tight wire. For fear of a collision, his protecting his own, Guy shouted to Carbine, sit, stay. Air spewed from Cop's lungs as he panted, the fuck, man. Damp fell from Guy, whose knee pressured down into Cop's lower back, weighted his features into the soil. Takes a big man to lay skin upon a young boy. Cop slobbered. Ain't none of your concern on how I discipline my spawn. I'm making it my concern. Behind Guy and Cop, Bo, with his mess of damp hair and pale complexion, gasped and inhaled hard as he rolled to his side, freeing his curved leg from the mower. 
Grunting, he struggled on knees and elbows and pushed himself to standing, searching for balance as his normal leg spasmed from the effort of exertion. Best get off me. No, what's best for you? Cop slobbered through his lemon-yellow-stained teeth. What's best is you not laying skin to your son. There's ways to learn your boy without rendering physical abuse. Don't hurt daddy. Was my ignorance, Mr. P- P- please. Bo spouted with fear. Son, Guy interrupted. You got nothing to be sorry for. Only one person here that needs to be sorry is the one absorbing the dirt. Bo waved his locks from his eyes. Kickstand limped to carbine, bony limbs brushing the granules of dirt from his stained and faded orange Tide logo t-shirt. He pressed his fingertips between Carbine's ears and rubbed his head. Carbine sniffed and licked Bo. Bo smiled and said slowly, It's all right, old pup. Let up on me, Cop demanded. Guy knew he could crush Cop like a car in a salvage yard compactor. He wanted to, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was the treatment of Bo. Glancing around the yard, he realized Cop's treatment of the property wasn't much better. Disgusted by the cars of any and all makes and models, fertilizing the earth with years of breakdown, each with fogged glass of grime, busted lights, scuffed fenders and doors, poison ivy and milkweed swarming the airless tires and rusted undercarriages and fenders, wasps and mud daubers swarming in and out of the interiors used as storage for ragged boxes of clothing, toys, pictures, and keepsakes. It was a corrosion of history, reminiscent of the bombed-out and rusted relics and remains from the Afghan and Russian War that populated much of the areas Guy had trespassed on during his early deployments overseas. Looking down on Cop with his lard-soaked locks and the smell of chemical stink wafting from his grizzled frame, Guy wondered why the man chose to live this way. Why didn't he choose better for himself or his son? Finally, Guy released his maddening restraint on Cop, stood up, and watched Cop as he slithered across the burnt land and struggled to his feet. Cinnamon-colored swells whirled his complexion as he wiped the slobber and dirt from his features and pointed at Guy. Fuck you and your ways. Been meddling and changing everyone's way of living since you moved into the valley. Wanting to live like a band of fucking hippies. Guy had helped to create a bartering system with the neighbors throughout the valley. Starting with his own gardening and hunting, meshing with old man Travis's raising of hogs, and then the Wythops with their cows and ammunition reloading. Soon after, there was the Hugheses with their hunting preserve, greenhouses, and weekend bonfires, where together the members of the valley were welcome to grill and swap stories and family histories. And Guy told Cop, It's called community, you fucking bully. And Cop barked, Not gonna tell me how to discipline my kin. This is how I live. He spread his arms wide. All this here land, my home. Bo, my boy, not yours, nor nobody else's.
Ain't no one, no damn war hero or bobble-thumping grass-fucking-fed neighbors gonna threaten me and my freedoms. Fighting the pugilistic force that raged throughout his frame, Guy clenched his fists and bit his tongue. Restraining himself from offering a restructuring to cop's face, Guy inhaled deeply, then exhaled. Damn shame. Treat your own blood same as you was treated. Think you'd want betterment of self. Offer something more than what you's offered. Loud music shook the interior walls of the trailer. In his closet, Bo sat drawing shapes and stick figures on the wall. A man and his dog, a stick figure face down on the ground. Nightcrawler thick swell about his face, holding a flashlight between dirty fingers. The noise grew louder, and so did the voices, followed by the smell of chemicals wafting into Bo's nose. The air was stagnant. Bo's eyes and lungs burned as his stomach grumbled and growled for nourishment. Bo knew his father would soon come stumbling and reckless, hands gripping and forceful. Worry and fear swarmed Bo. He decided to flee. Opening his window, Bo climbed out. Trailer lights and music vibrated behind him. Venturing up the hillside, the lights faded, the sounds lessened, until distance walled out any hint of the trailer and its occupants. Bo began his search for nourishment through the neighboring woods. Back pressed into the worn leather bench, Guy lowered the 300-pound bar to his chest, pressing it up and exhaling. Noting the pump of blood in his triceps and the flex of his pectorals, his back and front of his shoulders, tight under the dim light of the barn rafters overhead. He thought of the men, women, and children he'd helped, giving them hope for betterment, a chance. That's what the news never showed, never spoke about, betterment. All the work soldiers did gave their livelihood for it. And sometimes it brought improvement. Of course, when Guy was home, the world news only preached about struggle, killing, bombing, accidental deaths, political finger-pointing of blame. He rarely heard about anything positive. Guy lived with the images of war and loss in his mind, but also regret and anger, a constant circuit on instant replay. 20 years he served his country, traveling in and out of foreign lands, training to fight the battles that others could not, while she lay dissipating to bone cancer. In the States, there was much negativity. Negativity gave analysts something to bitch about, created ratings, and drew viewers and the soapbox of opinions from those who'd never served never stepped foot on the battlefield, never knew what it was like to be in a war zone. Lips, the shade of beets, her tint faded, the callus of sweat, clamp of her cold hand losing its clutch that last time he'd viewed her. Chopper blades assembling the air in rifts of high and low, the company of men, grunts, tension, the smell of iron, taste of blood, Screams of the blackened and burned, the damaged. Then silence. Those no longer breathing. 
The daily grind of perspiration and ceaseless effort stained Guy's steel bar, which he sometimes used as a shoulder-width grip, sometimes for bench pressing and other times for shoulder pressing, squatting, deadlifting, rowing. Carbine lay stretched out on a camo dog bed about the wooden slats of dusted floor watching Guy. Night air came warm from the valley with the scents of dirt, tree, and field grass, settling with the almost quiet of night, the only exception being the distant smudge of music and clamor of human disdain that echoed from way down over the hill at the Weevil's trailer. Finished with the bench, Guy jumped up to a metal bar attached between a framed opening of rough cut six by sixes, palms facing away, and began cranking out pull-ups, five reps, then 10 seconds of rest, then five more, going back and forth until 60 seconds had expired. Guy pushed through the pain. His mind drifted, thinking about the countries he fought in, how terrible it might have been from the beginning, but by the end, it was better, safer, making a dent. Removing terrorism, insurgents training others how to police their territory, to take responsibility, to care for their own. Guy's grip released after the intervals completed within 60 seconds. Back to the bench. He added a five-pound plate to each side of the bar, lay back down, unracked the bar, and lowered it. He pressed out 310 pounds for three reps. Now, all these years later, all he had was loss. A son he'd maneuvered a wall between, who he'd not spoken with since his wife's funeral and an abusive neighbor like the abusive tribesmen he'd encountered overseas. Getting up from the bench, Guy grabbed the chin-up bar and cranked out five pull-ups. Rest 10 seconds. Things changed after the loss of her. He couldn't speak to his son. Call it guilt, call it inability, call it acceptance. When he looked at his son, he was at a loss for words. Part of Guy saw her in him, while the other part of him didn't know what he saw or if he even understood her death. There was only a void, which he blamed himself for. Finishing another 60 seconds, he added another five pounds to each side of the barbell, slid beneath it, and cranked out another three reps. Being on the teams, it was about working together, never leaving a soldier behind. The teams were your brothers, your family. There was power in unity, in brotherhood, in owning up to one's mistakes and learning from one's wrongs. Seeing the mistreatment of Bo made Guy think of his own wrongs, his own owning up. Because he couldn't get why a father would mistreat his blood in such a brutal way. But then, why would a father go tone-deaf to his son for five years after the loss of his wife? his own son's mother. Going back to the pull-up bar for his final 60-second set, he heard the screeching echo of the screen door slamming down at his cabin. Carbine growled, sat up, and glanced at him, silky ears perked. Then, out the open barn Carbine went before he halted, waiting for Guy to lead. Who'd be dumb shit enough to burglar my stead? Guy reached for his Desert Warrior Kimber with a 45 ACP and pulled it from its holster. Carbine was in full alert mode. 
Guy gripped the pistol in his right hand as his left opened the screen door. There was a clatter of rummaging from his kitchen. Entering the living room, Guy's curved nails scratched across the hardwood to the kitchen ceramic, pistol raised, while memories rushed in of sweeping and securing mud structures, men appearing from the shadowed corners, trigger poles dropping the figures. Guy's heart punched hard, seeing the cabinet door stood ajar and the steel reflective fridge door open. Proceeding around the door low, pistol pointed, Guy saw a boy knelt down in worn tennis shoes, one foot wrapped in duct tape. It was Bo. Guy shook his head, releasing the tension from his war brain. His heart slowed in its rushing rhythm. Carbine came up beside Bo, licked his ear, and Bo turned to Guy and said, nothing but green shit in here. Don't she got no real food? Real food. Little shit wants nourishment and I was ready to end his ass. Awful picky for a kid who's breaking and entering. Why are you not at your home at this hour of night? Standing up, he said, Daddy's got people over. They's cutting a rug, as he sometimes calls it. I was hungry, but no, the cabinet's probably empty as my stomach. So you snuck out, thinking I'd feed you? I'd hoped. You offered concern for me today. You've been living here for some time. Never took a care to daddy's actions before. Guy turned to the open cabinet, sat his 45 on a shelf that Bo couldn't reach, looked back at Bo's scuffed appearance of lived-in clothes and told him, that's because I'd never seen your two-bit daddy offer skin upon you before. Mama stood up to his temper, got an eye full of knuckle for it. Why, she run off. Guy's stomach nodded. Hearing cops' wormless ways of action deciphered reminded him of the kids over there with nothing. No family, no role models, no food, nor clothing. Just to wake up breathing was a blessing. They had nothing but war. Sorry to hear your mother left. I miss her. Don't know where she ran off to. Guy felt for the boy, a motherless son. And he changed the subject. What can I fix you to eat? Don't she got no Doritos, Pop-Tarts, or frozen Tony's pizzas? Ain't got none of that garbage you speak of. I bought some deer loin and Brussels sprouts. Deer? Why don't you got no chips or frozen pizzas? That's not real food. It's processed by some unknown source full of chemicals and God knows what. I live from the land, earn what I eat. I know where my food comes from. It's how I was raised. Hmm. Never had no deer. Daddy don't hunt. I'm sure he don't. Seems strange. You don't even eat McDonald's? No. Nah. Eating that's worse than smoking cigarettes. Bo scrunched his forehead and thought, how about eggs? You got eggs? Straight from the chicken's ass. How about steak and eggs? Bo's powdery nomadic complexion brightened, and he nodded. He watched Guy pull the ceramic bowl of brown-shelled eggs from the fridge, a white log of freezer paper from the freezer, a jar of ghee from the cabinet, avocado oil, and Himalayan pink salt. 
firing a cast iron skillet upon the blue-orange gas flame of his stove, spooning the deep yellowish ghee and pouring the lime-green oil in the pan. Guy sprinkled the salt in for added flavor and minerals. Why don't y'all have no food? Cause daddy's on one of his binges, buying and trading meth with friends. Anger clouded Guy's mind as he cut the frozen, blood-colored loin into thick slabs the size of his palms. The boy speaking so open about his father's abuse as if it were natural. Why are your eggs not a carton? They're from my grass-fed chickens. I gather them up fresh every morning. You don't buy them? No, don't buy much food. Nor do most of the others who live in Walnut Valley. Most of what I have is either grown, laid, or shot, and canned and shelved or hunted, butchered, cured, and frozen and traded with some of the other farmers in the valley. Daddy says the valley's full of no-good hippie fucks. Yeah, he mentioned that. That why he still lives here? Daddy says he's gonna sell our place, move further south. Is he now? That's what he says. Bo paused, looking at the pictures hanging on the kitchen walls, then asked, Who's that woman on the wall? Straight brunette locks flowing down to her shoulders. She was a natural beauty, with green eyes and a smile that'd make a man warm from his heart to his heels. My wife. She in bed sleeping? Laying hunks of loin in the hot oil, Guy watched as they sizzled and popped. He thought of her, of those times he was home from the war when he and Hodge would gather eggs at their old home. They could smell the bacon grease and the eggs heated over the blue-orange flame from all the way up at the barn. She passed when I was overseas, he said, as he turned each steak with a fork. How'd she die? Cancer. Quit the chemo, then the dialysis. Dialysis? Her kidneys quit. She had to have them cleaned or basically recycled by a nurse and a machine. Guy took a plate from the cabinet, lined it with paper towels, and laid each steak on the plate. Then he cracked six eggs, filling the skillet with them. He reached to remove the lid from the jar of ghee, spooning out more of the yolky colored substance that was thick as peanut butter into the skillet. Pointing to a picture of a young man who resembled Guy with his arm around another young man, Bo asked, who's them two guys? My son, Hodge, and his boyfriend. Bo pushed his hair from his greasy complexion, held the description of confusion. Boyfriend? He's a faggot? It sounded insulting when spoke by anyone, but even worse by such a younger individual. Judgmental, as if there was something wrong with the word, its definition, his son. But there was nothing wrong with it in Guy's mind, though he hadn't fully wrapped his mind around it. He loved his son regardless of his choices in life. Guy winced. No, he's gay. Ain't that a fag? That is an insulting term I'm sure you acquainted from your no-good son-of-a-bitch daddy. My son is gay, and he's a good man, 
Out of respect, I'd appreciate you to do the same. Huh. Never met a person who had a gay son. Bo grew silent, chewing on his next question. Finally, Bo said, Daddy said you's a war hero? No, hero. Just a soldier. Marine recon. Guy cut lines in the skillet, separating the eggs, then used a spatula to flip them. He placed the eggs onto plates, added the steaks, and sat each of them on the rectangular-shaped hard oak table. Help yourself. Seeing Bo in his home reminded him of Hodge when he was a kid. Only he could already cook, cracking eggs, adding them to a buttered skillet or slicing deer, peeling sweet potatoes, adding cinnamon to them. Hodge had been raised to care for himself. He had been raised with manners. Looking at Bo, whose teeth were tinged a color green as thick pond scum, Guy wondered if he'd ever had a physical or a dentist visit. Bo chomped his food like a scavenging barbarian, mouth wide open, particles displacing from his lips. No one ever teach you to close your mouth when eating? Bo began to talk, brown and white wads of deer and egg mixed about his mouth when Guy interrupted. Close your mouth. No need to speak with a mouth full of food. It's etiquette. Bo shut his mouth. His face reddened. He lowered his head and slowed his chewing. No need to get embarrassed, Guy comforted. You don't know better if no one ever learned your proper manners. Bo cut his deer forked it into his mouth, kept it closed, chewed a little slower. Guy noticed the dots of bruising that purpled Bo's wrists and forearms. What is it you do all day at your home? Don't you got school? Swallowing his food, Bo responded, when I go, some days I miss the bus. No one ever makes me go, but we're out now. Most days, daddy's gone running around with his friends. Sometimes I go with him, sometimes I don't, I, I don't like going. What's that? His friends ain't nice people, they. Lowering his gaze, Bo said, I don't wanna talk about it. Mashing the white and yellow of his eggs, Bo forked them into his mouth. Guy asked, how old are you? Nine, I turned 10 in a couple months. His mind seemed younger. You're in third or fourth grade? Third. Guy finished eating, stood up, scooted his chair beneath the table, and went to the steel sink. He washed his hands and placed the dishes in the sink, plugging the drain and turning on the hot water. He reached for a sponge and a chunk of lye soap, then began scrubbing the grease and food stains from the plate. Bo got up from the table and began to wander about. Your plate? Bo looked oddly at Guy. What about it? I's done. You're done once you push your chair beneath the table and place your plate and utensils in this hot soapy water to clean them. Least you can do after I fed you. Confusion dumbfounded Bo's yolk-smeared lips, his greasy mop covering his right eye. He pushed the chair in, grabbed the plate, and stepped solidly with one leg, off kilter with the other, shaking all the way to the sink. Guy moved to give the boy space. He watched as Bo dropped the plate into the heated sink full of suds. Bo looked up at him, 
flung his head sideways to clear his locks from his vision. How I do it? Guy was reminded of Hodge and him clearing the table. He'd wash and Hodge would dry. His wife would wipe down the stove and the kitchen table and place leftovers into Tupperware, storing them in the fridge. It was family, something Guy had not felt in a long time, and a concept that seemed foreign to Bo. Hold the plate in one hand, grip the sponge in the other. Scrub off your eatings till the plate's clean. Rinse it off in the other sink. Then I'm walking you home. Can I come back? Bo asked timidly. Anytime you want, Guy paused. Curious, he asked. Your leg, how'd you injure it? Daddy ran over it with a lawnmower on accident. when He's mowing and I was playing in the yard. Never could afford the surgery to get it right. Guy wondered if Cop even considered having Bo's leg fixed, then realized he more than likely hadn't. It was a sad situation, considering there was always means to heal or fix a person, if one looked hard enough, put forth the effort. Cop watched Bo as he crawled back through his bedroom window. Cop was enraged his eyes filled by red vessels and glossed by a stupor of various drugs and booze, he demanded to know where the fuck Bo had snuck off to. The woods. The woods? Doing what? Just walking around? Useless ass. Got people in the other room. He's waiting to meet you. I, I don't wanna. Sound like your whiny-ass mother used to. There's plenty of things I don't wanna do. Didn't want to spit your ass into this world, but your mama did, then skipped out on us. Pausing, he pointed to Bo's unmade bed, to the wrinkled and dirty flower print dress that lay spread out. Now put that on. With sunken shoulders and eyes bubbling up with tears, Bo began to undress. Gunfire sparked from the speeding, steel-plated Humvee barreling down the streets of sand. The gunner on top dropped brass, throwing up chunks of clay along the rooftops of insurgents up above. Cries of battle rang and scorched from thick, wool-faced men. In the Humvee, Guy sat with his men, the tone of her voice echoing in his mind, remembering when he'd call after a mission. Feeble, weak, worn, sometimes after sitting for days, watching gathering intel. No matter what state Guy was in, she was always able to speak with him. Then came an explosion. Screams and shouts from men woke Guy from his sleep. Sweat-soaked, he reached out and patted the velvet, soft, tick fur of carbine laid out beside him. Ribcage rising and falling, Guy sat up and turned legs hanging muscled and veined from the cotton-covered mattress. His eyes scanned the wall quickly, dismissing his medals of service and focusing on the picture of her and him, young together, ear-to-ear -ear smiles. No sickness, no war, just bright eyes. Then he looked to another photo, 
A young man, camo makeup caked on his face, orange vest on his torso, hands grasping the wide forked rack of an eight-pointer. Mess of leaves painted dark by blood, which to the amateur eye appeared like shadows befalling the midday light. It was field dressing to Hodge, around eight years of age after taking down his first buck. He thought of all those years of coming home from foreign lands, teaching his son, Hodge, all the times they'd spent as a family when they could. Hunting, fishing, hiking, birthdays, Christmas, grilling, camping. Then came the sickness, the loss, then silence. Where did time go? Guy blamed himself for not being here for taking that final year over there. Should have stayed here, close to home, trained and prepared soldiers to go over there for combat. Visited her on the weekends. Would it have made a difference? He told himself it would have. He was starting to see that now. Then came the knock at the back door. Early riser. Bo stood, donning an off-white t-shirt with Johnny Cash flying the bird, faded wranglers with spurs of fray about the denim knees. His hair wasn't matted and oiled to his forehead as usual, covering his field of vision. Instead, the length was pushed over and tucked behind his ears. He appeared clean, as though he'd bathed, changed his clothing. You, you said I could come back. Guy started to smile. I did. Come on in. Eager, Bo asked, you got any more of them eggs or that deer? I do. Give me time to get my stretching done. I'll cook something. As if a foreign word had been offered, Bo questioned with, stretching? Yeah, keeping the body strong, limber, tendons and ligaments. Boy, your age, it'll help with longevity. After 20 minutes of Guy showing Bo different ways to twist, bend, and kneel his body into odd positions, holding postures like prayer twists, downward dog, butterflies, kneeling tiger, and how to lower and raise his body weight with push-ups and air squats, Bo was trembling as he stumbled around off balance from his malformed leg. The phone rang. Guy walked across the hardwood to the tiled kitchen. Yeah, he answered. Say it's pretty wet. Is it a large puddle? Guy paused, shook his head, bit his lip. Sure, just give me about ten and I'll be over. Guy hung up the phone. Bo stood moist-faced and out of breath as Guy told him, Negative on the food. Got an errand to run. I'm loading up. Need to shuttle out at 0900. Surprised, Bo said, Loading up? Going to help old man Travis with a busted water line. Can I go? Sure. Could use the extra help. A transplant from Mississippi, Travis was a retired factory worker turned farmer with an affinity for rescuing beagles from shelters. He'd a large area yard fenced off where five were housed with plenty of food and exercise to live out their days, free from restraint and stress. He'd grown up within the Delta, learned to pick the guitar from his father and grandfather, 
held an addiction to R.L. Burnside and Lead Belly, some classic blues artist years deceased. He would pick his guitar at weekend bonfire gatherings within the valley. He was a brute of a man, standing six foot five, 250 pounds, built like a Montana grizzly bear. Out of Travis's home, the soil was saturated by puddles of water. Figured I best phone you, said old man Travis. Think it can be fixed? Examining the mess of water, Guy said, I want to see why not. Standing with bow and carbine, Guy looked about the wet grass and continued with, get some shovels, we'll dig the area up, see where your leak's coming from. And you may want to get White Thop on the phone and get an extra hand over here for digging. How about the main? Cut her off. When we ran this line, we didn't go too damn deep. Shouldn't take more than an hour to dig down and find our leak. Guy had come up with a solution to rising water costs, to pipe the cisterns on each person's property and supply them from a cave on his land, which tapped into an underground stream. It was a new venture, and Travis and he had rigged up a filtration system with a generator and pumping network. They were still working the kinks out of it. Travis went into the barn and returned with three rusted and worn shovels. Guy took one and glanced at Bo. What? Bo asked. Take the damn shovel, Guy pointed to the muddy area. Start digging. I'm headed to the house. Give White Thop a ring. Be right back, old man Travis shouted. Go ahead, we'll get started. Later, with the sun firing down upon the four frames in the yard, their bodies casting shadows over the ground, each working as well-oiled machines, Bo stood irritated by the moisture beating down his forehead and neck, the cotton of his shirt and the denim of his pants suffocating the pores of his skin. Angered and confused, he watched Guy, Travis, and Wythop did his best imitation of their actions, stomping the blade into the earth with his malformed leg, balancing his body as he scooped the wet soil and piled it off to the side. Out of breath, Bo asked, Why for we gotta do this? Can't someone else? Someone else. They certain traits and skill sets each of us in the valley have acquired over our years of living. Wiped up here, he raises hogs and cows. Travis is a big gardener. We all hunt, fish, know about guns and carpentry. This is what we do, help and learn one another. Bo's words reminded Guy of Hodge the first time he took him hunting. All the whys. Why are we walking so far? Why are we up so early? Why are we got to be so quiet? It was the blind know-how of the learning curve. The men worked, heat penetrating their bodies, Shovels slicing into the soil, creating that rhythm of metal to dirt over and over. Travis wiped the warm from his brow with a blue hanky pulled from the worn denim of his ass pocket. Said, been five years or better since your daddy passed. Since you moved into the valley, ain't it, Guy? Guy looked up, his vision pinched beneath the bright heat, sweat beaded up. About that, why? He asked wondering where the conversation was headed. Just thinking on how much things has changed. Ain't heard of too many break-ins around our area for some time. This county was scourged by meth, heroin, and opana. All the theft and addiction was going around to good, hard-working folks. Wythop looked at Bo. 
wanted to say something about the boy's father, but instead he ran a forearm over his salty face. Guy, you really helped out by speaking with local representatives, the mayor, local law. Got all those neighbors together, brainstormed ideas for solutions instead of bitching and complaining. We really educated one another, worked together. Help get funding for rehabilitation of opiate and meth addiction. Guy paused, sweat soaking his frame, and said, At the end of the day, most folks want healthier ways of living. Goes to show what speaking amongst ourselves and working for a goal can rectify. Wythop smirked at Bo. Don't get why some folks is happy living in an abusive manner. Milk and disability, destroying their mind and body, decaying their souls with dope. Bo felt Wythop's eyes on his, didn't quite understand his phrasing, but knew the weight of what he was saying had to do with him and his father and how they lived. Guy spoke. In my recon unit, we'd built a brotherhood through the grind of our training, teamwork, implemented ideas and input from each other, helped us survive, created a better environment amongst ourselves. I just did that same way of thinking here. He reached, patted Bo on the shoulder. When one soldier wasn't 100%, another was there to guide and learn him until he was. Mud piled in height and width until they'd unearthed about eight feet of length from the line. The water around it came caramel-colored. Guy pointed out the leak, and Travis asked, What's your prognosis? Cut out about an inch or two before and after the leaking section of the PVC. Let the remaining water drain out. Get bowl rag and a two or three foot section of tubing or garden hose to siphon the water from around the leak. Then let Bo wipe the pipe down once it's drained. I'll take care of sealing it. In the barn, on a workbench laminated by motor oil and grease, Guy held out his Case XX pocket knife, told Bo, cut me off a few feet of that string. I'll show you a trick. Uncoiling a long piece of string, Bo severed it. Guy noticed new bruising around Bo's wrist. As Bo handed him the string, a surge of discomfort and anger wilted Guy internally. What are you gonna do with that? Bo asked with a grimace of confusion. Lining the string across the replacement PVC, Guy wrapped the string around each of his digits, pulled the string tight as if he were going to choke someone from behind. He pressed the string across the PVC and thought of Bo's bruises. Then the young boys overseas, how some were treated, how the tribesmen spit in their faces, tripped, kicked, and punched them. Anger expanded as he began the back-and-forth motion of sawing, remembering all of the times he was supposed to have ignored those ill deeds but could not, when he had to intervene, to step in, to stop the assaults, the abuse. How you learn to do that? Bo asked. Bo's words brought his mind back to now, and he told him, My uncle was a pipe fitter. Old trick he showed me when you don't got a saw. Friction across the pipe creates heat, letting the string divide the pipe. Divide? You mean cut? Old man Travis chuckled. Son, you sure got a mouthful of unknowns. 
and Whitethought mumbled, Sometimes you can't fix, stupid. Bo's complexion reddened. Ignoring Whitethop's words, camouflaging his discomfort, Guy asked Bo, Where them bruises on your wrist come from? There was a quiet that suffocated Bo, as though it was ether in the air. Embarrassment. Bo shied away from the actions of the others, reminded of his behind-closed-doors abuse, and mumbled, Daddy and his friends. The sun dissipated to the west as Guy sat at his kitchen table. Several old t-shirts doubled as rags, splotched by greasy yellow stains. A notepad, a can of three-in-one oil, a skinning knife, and a few pocket knives lay scattered next to a gray rectangular hunk of stone. Bo looked curious, pointed, and asked, What's that rock for? Guy smirked. It's a sharpening stone. Use it to sharpen my knives. Picking up the stone, he handed it to Bo. Here, hold this. Bo took the stone. What'll I do with it? Guy squeezed the bottle of three-in-one, which came out in small drops, a similar shade to canola oil, and wet the stone. Rub your index finger over the liquid real easy-like. Bo ran his finger back and forth over the stone. The oil slowly moistened the surface, and Guy took the stone from Bo and told him, that lubricated the surface. Now we can hone us a good edge. Taking his skinning knife from its black leather sheath, the blade a shiny chrome, Guy pressed and guided the edge gently against the stone, on one side and then the other, going back and forth. I try to do the same number on each side, gliding it real slow. How many times? I'll do five on one side, then the other. Just go back and forth, like so. Guy sat the stone down, reached for a rag, and wiped the gray, oily film from the blade. Now I check how sharp it is. Guy tore a piece of paper from the notepad, held it up, met the top of it with the blade, started a slight sawing motion as he pressed the blade, looking to make a single swipe. If I gotta keep sawing, the blade ain't sharp enough. If I can make a single swipe, it's good. Bo sat in amazement. Can I try and do it? Sure, Guy chuckled. We'll use a smaller knife. Guiding a single edge of a three-blade pocket knife back and forth over the wet stone brought back memories of Hodge getting his first pocket knife for Christmas. A buck knife with a lock blade, brass ends, with a dark walnut center. Guy taught Hodge all the do's and don'ts of owning a knife. Don't cut toward yourself, cut away from yourself. Never run with an open blade. Don't stab at or pretend to poke someone with it. It's not a toy. He remembered showing Hodge how to sharpen his knife, how to keep the blade oiled, the hinge and the lock lubed. Bo asked Guy, Think that's enough? Grab some paper and we'll see. The passing weeks brought more and more thoughts of Hodge, how he'd been doing since the passing of his mother. How was his job at the Ford Motor Plant where he was an engineer? Was he even still there? Guy had picked up the phone more than once, wanting to dial that number, only to hang up. One night, 
Guy and Bo came across the damp kale green yard, carrying a large mason jar half filled with moist soil. And Bo questioned, what's this jar of dirt for again? To keep what we catch alive. What are we catching? Nightcrawlers. Then what do we do with them? Storm in the fridge until we're ready to go fishing. Guy shined his large mag light upon the ground. Worms slithered from their pencil-sized holes, greasy pink and veiny. Guy told Bo, reach down and pick them up, put them into the jar before they shoot back into their holes. One after the next, Bo bent down, pressed his already dirt-stained knee into the ground, reached and pinched a worm between his fingers, feeling it squirm and slither. Ugh, that feels gross, he said to Guy as he placed them into the jar. Why are we doing this? Because you told me you'd never been fishing before. Once we fill the mason, I'll take you to a honey hole on the Blue River one evening, reel in some hand-sized bass and bluegill. Nearly every morning, Bo showed up at Guy's back door, sometimes in the same ragged shirt and dirty denim from the previous day, hair slapped across his head, unwashed, the reek of body butter, but always eager to seize the day. On one particular morning, after a strong cup of coffee and stretching, Guy and Bo came from the house, walked up to the barn with carbine trailing to the hen house, just opposite of Guy's workout area. Bo carried a white bucket, went from hen to hen, checking their roost about the hay, just as he did most mornings upon his visits, pulling from beneath them the caramel and vanilla-colored eggs. Reaching with his tiny arm, his fingers feeling beneath a red and rust-feathered hen, he glanced to his right. Alarm stabbed down his spine as he saw a black-scaled serpent outstretched off to the left of the chicken, its forked tongue sliding out. Watching Bo, it raised its head curious to his movements. Bo stumbled backward over the slats of dusty floor. Guy caught a view of the scaled reptile and its yellow stripes over the black. Reaching a hold of Bo's sweaty shirt collar, he helped him retain his balance, said, it's okay. Only a black snake, harmless. Its tongue keeps jutting out. Fucker's preparing to bite me. No, they can't hear. It's bouncing waves out at your movements. It's like a radar detector. Just curious is all. Reaching quickly, Guy grabbed the snake behind its head, pinching and picking it up. The snake coiled its body over the ropey muscle of Guy's forearm. Walking from the barn to the green yard, daylight beating down, Bo followed behind Guy, nervous, grasping the bucket of eggs. Guy turned, held the snake for Bo, said, See its eyes? It ain't poisonous. They's good for catching mice and rats. Gotta watch them around the eggs. They'll try and eat them. Guy released the snake, watched it slither away through the grass. There were other mornings when Bo would arrive before sunrise to work out with Guy, his muscles shaking and twitching from doing bodyweight exercises Guy taught him, push-ups and pull-ups and air squats. Though he was weak those first few weeks, nearly falling over from the crooked leg, his strength and balance began to take hold and grow, as did his confidence, as he'd built his body up to doing several sets of 10 to 20 reps after a month. Other times, he'd ride with Guy when he visited old man Travis or one of the other families within the valley to offer a hand around their farms, 
cutting wood, running or repairing fence line, helping with gardening or greenhousing. Guy was building Bo's character and his confidence, educating him with discipline, etiquette, teamwork, community, and masculinity, filling the void of father and son within both their lives. Hell you go every damn day, Cop questioned as he slapped Bo upside his head. Red-faced and swelling, Bo told him, Why hell you care? You ain't never home no way. Don't give me the smarts, boy. Answer the question. Walking. Walking where? Cop fired without allowing Bo to finish. The neighbors, Bo said, rubbing the heated swell of his head. What neighbor? Guy. Anger thickened within Cop. He knew the boy had been going over there for weeks. Cop just wanted to hear him admit it and said, the war hero, really? What for do you all do all damn day? He learns me about things that you don't, Bo said, using his words like punches. Like gardening, gathering eggs, knife sharpening, woodcutting. He's taking me fishing Sunday evening. Things I don't, fucking retard. Fishing? Like to see that, Cop cackled. Probably can't even bait the fucking hook without running the damn thing in your index. You'd fall off the damn bank. Drown for you catch a freaking fish. Maybe he'd teach you how to swim while he's at it. Cop thought not everyone wants to abide in this Samaritan community. Some things a boy needs to learn on his own. Like how food don't just appear in the cabinet. It takes money to buy that shit. But this little son of a bitch wants to sit around and eat all day every day and do jack shit around the trailer. Jeez. What does a guy get from cutting wood, draining his pores while digging fence post holes, butchering hogs, milking cows, or tending garden other than sore hands and a busted back? Cop never had no interest in helping these fucks out. Probably talking about wars fought on continents he gave two shits about. Gardening, hunting, livestock, or what the fuck ever they talked about when they did what they did. Boy should be here, mowing my fucking yard, washing dishes, scrubbing shit and piss stains from the toilet, keeping the trailer cleaner than it was. Should be here taking care of his old man, doing what cop wanted him to do. Bunch of horse shit if you ask cop. He'd known what all this was about what all these hippie fuckers was aiming to do. The sons of bitches were trying to brainwash his boy, his own flesh and blood, raising him how they saw fit, because he'd never give in to their ways. Fuck them. He wasn't liking it one damn bit. He wanted to bust Bo upside his head again. But he knew how to hurt the boy worse than physical contact. Instead, he told Bo, You ain't going nowhere, Sunday. Got company coming over. Need you here. The community sat as they did every Saturday evening in the old Methodist church's hall, speaking about change, progress, goals, and betterment for everyone in the valley. Don't get why you'd have an interest in helping that boy, said Wythop, with his thinning mane of hair. His granddaddy stole your daddy's land. Someone's got to, Guy told him. Why you? asked old man Travis. Because he came to me. 
The boy didn't do nothing to me nor my father. Kid's simpleton in the skull, said Whitehop, pointing to his temple. He's got simple ways, but he learns good, retains. Problem is, he's never had no one that gave two shits about him, Guy told the men. Shaking his head, Whitehop said, Don't none of us in the valley get it. His daddy's a no-count, dope-headed son of a bitch. Ain't your problem if he's a big minus as a father? There's nothing to get. We created a community that helps one another. That's what I'm doing. Helping and learning the boy with some skills, attributes. Things he can carry on in life. Maybe learn someone else when he's older. Break this mold that he's engulfed within. He deserves that much. With each unanswered ring of the phone, there was a nervousness that Guy hadn't felt since his first day of boot camp. Just when he was ready to hang up, a voice that sounded much like his own, but younger and familiar, answered. Hello? An uneasiness overcame this man who'd been trained to be precise, dead on, instinctive, and he said, Hodge? Dad? How you been? How have I been? Hodge repeated sarcastically. Wow. Look, just hear me out. Can you offer me that much? A deep exhale came from Hodge, followed by a bored tone of, Can I offer you that much? Sure, I guess I can. I mean, it's only been, what, five years of you being off the grid? Or what's the military term, MIA? What I did, it's wrong. I should have answered your calls, your notes on the door when I wasn't here. Should have called or visited you. I always looked up to you. After everything you did raising me, never judged you for taking deployments. I knew what you had to do. It was your job. You were my hero, a real-life combat soldier. Even in the end, when you weren't here, I knew, Mom knew, or at least we thought we knew that you loved us. But after, I mean, you retired. You're home. She's gone, but I'm still here. You're still here, or I thought you were. But there's only so much time. You taught me to make the most of that, not distance ourselves. I deserve every word of that. Damn right you do. Truth is, every time I looked at your mother in that casket, all I saw was you. Then seeing you reminded me of her. All that did was make me realize I should have been here. I shouldn't have been on deployment. I made the wrong choice. If I'd have taken a job training and prepping soldiers for war, I could have been here. And she wouldn't have turned down care. She'd have had a fighting chance. It wouldn't have mattered. She made her peace. Made her choice. I could have persuaded her. Extended her life by searching out other options of treatment. No, you couldn't. And she knew that. She was tired 
of fighting. She wanted to rest. She had worn out her existence of pills, injections, and tubes. All the prodding and poking with needles and fluids, she wanted to be herself, not a figment of the doctors and their pharmaceuticals. She wanted us to remember her how she once was, not how she ended up in the end. It was her choice, not ours. Silence sat hard. Look, I didn't call to fight. I called to say I was sorry. Fine, you're sorry. And I was wrong for what I've done. I want to see you. Why? Why now, all of a sudden, you got to change your heart? Bo. Bo? He's this boy. Lives down the road. Being abused by his father, he's a no-count son of a bitch. A real fucking tool, dopehead. Boy's been helping me around the farm. Learned him a lot like I learned you. It's brought back all these memories. Things I hadn't felt nor let myself think about in a long time. You're a real piece of work, Dad. Don't see your own son in five years, but you're making time to raise some dopeheads, kid? Look, he don't have no one. Got bruises all up and down his arms, a busted up leg, didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. And of all the simplest and smallest of things, the boy has no table manners to speak of. Hodge got quiet again. Then he laughed. Bet that didn't go over good. Why you say that? Because mom set you and me straight more than a time or two about eating and talking with her mouths full. You was always gone. And when you come home, was always eager to talk, to catch up. She always said, chew your food first, swallow, then talk all you want. No heathens being raised in her house. Really miss her. Me too. Silence. Look, I want to take Bo fishing Sunday, and I'd like you to go. Think he could learn a lot from being around you. More silence. Well, I'll think about it. Can't expect anything more. I appreciate it. Guy's body still twitched from his morning workout as he paced. Carbine sat watching Guy walk back and forth over the hardwood floor, stopping every now and then to pull the curtain back, glance out at the gravel drive to see if Hodge was driving down it. Carbine's tan ears perked up, his nails ticked across the floor, and he stood at the kitchen door waiting and watching. Then came the knock. Carbine stood, his tail slicing the air, whining with excitement at the scent on the opposite side. Guy opened the door and there stood a mirror image of himself, only younger, his hair longer, devoid of gray, his face sharp as a razor, arms veined and thick, they hung from his navy blue rogue t-shirt. Can invite me in? Guy embraced Hodge, patted his back hard with his palm. Carbine came, nudging his head beneath Hodge's hand that lay flat and trapped at his side by Guy's bear hug. Thank you for coming.
he said into Hodge's ear. All right, all right, can I come in? In the kitchen, Hodge stood, chest and shoulders pressing out of his shirt. His old denim jeans, faded and relaxed, ran down over his beat work boots as he rubbed Carbine's hound dog head. Looks like you've taken good care of Granddad's house. Guy poured a fresh cup of coffee. I do my best. You want a cup? Sure. Black, right? Yeah. Can't believe it's been five years. Wasn't my choice, Hodge said, scooting an oak chair from beneath the kitchen table, with Carbine at his side, licking and play-biting at his hand as Hodge sat down. Grabbing the glass pot, Guy poured a steaming, sludgy cup for Hodge, handed him the cup, and said, Oh no, it's mine. Can't make up for lost time. Only make the most of what time is left. Hodge raised his cup. Here's to new beginnings. Guy did the same. Each sipped his steaming cup, swallowed. Carbine's gotten bigger. Looks like he's in good shape. He runs with me most days. I don't want to overdo it on his joints, but he gets plenty of road work. And belly rubs? Guy smiled, plenty of those. Sipping his coffee, he asked. What made you come? Devin. He told me how when his father passed, it left such a void in his life. A lot of things he wished he would have done but didn't. He and his mother quit talking. And then she got sick and, well, he has a lot of regrets. Hodge sipped his coffee, said, look, I'm here, and that's what matters now. I'll have to thank Devin when I see him. Hodge nodded. Where's this bow? Good question. He's here most mornings before I can even stretch. Early riser. He's got a lot of potential. Just a shithead father. Let's get our gear ready while we wait. Sounds good. They readied their fishing poles, bringing a third for Bo. Had the mason of night crawlers and artificial baits, hooks, jigs, extra line, and sinkers. They stood out by Hodge's black and blue Ford Raptor. Guy said, looks like work is treating you good. We get the A-plan discount at Ford, but yeah, things are good. Came back strong after the downturn in 2009 with layoffs and other places shutting down. It really hurt a lot of folks. Yeah, Hodge paused, looking out to the fields. Always was peaceful here. Still is. Guy looked at his watch. I don't know where Bo's at. Not like him. Something's not right. Should have been here hours ago. Bo wouldn't miss going fishing for the first time. What do you want to do? Phone the sheriff. Tell him we're paying Bo and his father a visit. Vehicles with various forms of wear and corrosion lined the gravel patched by grass driveway. Shifting to park, Hodge asked, Why didn't you tell me it was cops, kid? His daddy fucked granddad over real good from the story I grew up hearing. That he did. With us not talking, I didn't think nothing of it. But now you know. I know this kid of his don't got a snowball's chance in hell if everything granddad used to say is true. You ever knowed your granddad to be a liar? No. Before we get out, here's the situation. 
There's drugs inside that trailer and some form of abuse toward Bo. I'd bet my existence on it. Wanna wait on Sheriff Diggs? No. Bo's waited long enough, we gotta get him out. Stepping from the raptor, Guy and Hodge went side by side up the uneven walkway. Music thumped and voices carried from the trailer. Guy kept his temper tucked like a forty-five colt, imagining the mistreatment of Bo, how those bruises had been obtained upon his wrists, hands pressing to skin violently, wrapping, delivering pain. He tucked his anger down into each fist, would do what needed doing with his fists if it came to that, expecting shit to detour south quick. Stepping from the walkway, Hodge and he came across the men's of yard. Boots pressed up the creak of rotted steps, sounding off like a battalion of two soldiers marching toward battle. The pit bull was nowhere in sight, which alerted Guy that the dog was more than likely inside. Facing the green, molding front door, Guy heard voices rumbling from the other side. Water fell in a constant drip beside him from a window unit AC. Guy looked to Hodge. Hodge nodded, rested his hand on his thigh. Guy raised his fist and pounded the door in sync to the rhythm of Ray Wiley Hubbard's Mother Blues. His other hand held a lax fist. Adrenaline surged throughout each man's frame like high-voltage electricity. Then the twist of the tarnished knob. The door swung open, and a draft of cold air combined with chemicals and tobacco smoke stung Guy's and Hodge's faces. Guy stood face to face with Cop, his insides raging, wanting to rip his arms off, beat the man with each limb. You lost? Cop asked, shirtless and pale, eyes stabbed with veins and dope glaze. Here for Bo. Bo's busy. Behind Cop, the room was laced with silhouettes that Guy tallied in his mind. Three cars in the driveway, couples of two inside the trailer, if his head count was correct. That'd make six, seven counting Cop, eight with the pit. Cop would be a shield to his entrance, used to block and ram whoever came next, and they wouldn't just get thumped, they'd get hurt. No wasted blows, each man would have to get stung by injury. From somewhere inside, the pit barked, and Guy told Cop, he's gonna get unbusy. Irritated, with a hint of shivering, Cop twisted his head, lipped, shut that bitch-ass dog up. Someone made a racket, the dog growled, then yelped. A jolt traveled through Guy. Mistreatment of another human was something he couldn't tolerate, but to mistreat an animal really pierced Guy's skin. Then he saw a glimpse of Bo, in a flower print dress. Two men lounged on a couch on one side, love seat on the other, with a lone man. That's three men, pushing Bo back and forth, laughing. Get you an eyeful. Cop twisted his stagnant gaze back to Guy and laughed. Furious, Guy said, Bo's coming with me. Over my dead body. Have it your way, Guy told Cop. Came with a left hand to Cop's throat. Then Guy dug his fingertips into Cop's windpipe and squeezed, muscled his frail ass backward into the trailer, ran him into a table lined with bottles of booze and baggies of white powder until his legs buckled. His body spread across it, clattering the shapes of glass to the floor. 
All eyes came to Guy, who looked to Bo. You coming with me? Music was still pumping. Ray Wiley hovered. The pit sat on the floor, scared. Chain attached to its neck next to one of the men's bare feet, who looked up with one eye fractured into a permanent wink, the other smeared by drunkenness and drugs. Who the fuck are you? Hodge towered over the man, daring him to move. Button your lip, or I'll button it for you permanently. What about Katie? Bo asked, his face pocked by lipstick. Guy yelled to Bo, get your dog and let's get. Cop came up from the table, wobbling, arms swinging. Ain't taking my boy. Guy caught his movement from the corner of his eye, met him with a left stiff cross. Fluid and teeth flinted the air as he was knocked back across the table. Your boy? You got a sick way of raising him. From the love seat, the lone man started to stagger to standing. Wait a fucking- Katie went crazy, barking at the man as if she sensed security from Guy and Hodge. As Hodge came with a hard right, indented the man's sternum, shifted the lone man back to sitting. Find your fucking cushion or find your teeth. Showing the dirty palms of each hand, the man searched for his wind, rubbed his chest, gasped. Not a problem, man, not a problem. Bo took Katie by her chain, led her from the group of men. Cop came from the table once more, blood rivered from his lips and nose. He'd still not recovered the function of his legs as he stumbled, slurred, ain't taking my boy. Guy punched Cop back onto the table and held him down while telling Bo, Katie and you get out to the truck. You don't need to see this. Bo ran out of the trailer with Hodge close behind. Barefoot, he ran with Katie over the deck, down the steps. Hodge followed behind him, telling him to go toward the police lights. Inside the trailer, with Guy's right hand clamped around Cop's throat, squeezing, he felt Cop trying to struggle to move. But the man was weak, his face blistered red as he gagged and stuttered. What, what are you waiting for, war hero? End me. Kneeling, he ran his fingers over the mucus-slick marble that tic-tacked in colors of pink, black, and gray. Wife, mother, loved by all, engraved into the stone. A cold air from within warmed Guy internally. He'd never visited Joyce. Most referred to her as Joy, as that's what she brought. He lay the white petals with yellow centers upon the pedestal. Daisies, her favorite flower. He felt a guilt needling within from not visiting sooner. Lowering his head, taking in all that he'd incurred over the long weeks, his mind still burned with the visit from the sheriff and their volley of words. No one would have blamed you if you choked that useless son of a bitch to his death said Sheriff Diggs in his county browns. Standing out back at Guy's cabin beneath an elm tree, Guy told Diggs, can't say I didn't want to, but I couldn't take that from the boy, regardless of how wretched his daddy is. We'd both be living with that for the rest of our lives. Well, he and those miscreants ain't getting out anytime soon, 
There's enough drugs and paraphernalia to seal them in county for a long, long while until they court date. Diggs cleared his throat and continued. Judge Harlan and Child Services says the boy can stay with you till they locate his mother. If that's okay, that's fine. My worry is you won't find her unless you get a cadaver dog and search cops' property. Shit, guy, don't say that. Regardless, what I don't get is how in this day and age, with all that's offered for betterment, why a person wouldn't make a go toward betterment for himself and his boy. Drugs. They've been the ruin of many lives throughout the county. See it day in and day out. Ruin. Guy rolled that word over in his mind, looking at the stone, thinking now of his wife, of joy, of how even with all of his discipline, a part of him had been ruined by her loss. Off in the distance behind him, the idol of his son's truck carried in the air. And he thought about Bo, how he'd helped mend that ruin, helped him face that blame he carried within. Guy wasn't healed, but he was no longer ruined.